What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show planned for you today, especially because we have another new co-host joining us, Alimia Lauren. Welcome. I'm excited to be here, Ravi. We're so glad to have you with us. And Brie will be back, of course, with us tomorrow, and Kim Iverson will be joining us later today. But first, a string of gun violence unfortunately swept the country over the weekend. A mass shooting event on Philadelphia's popular South Street saw three people killed and 11 injured on Saturday night. Officials say multiple shooters were involved and that they believe the violence was sparked by an argument between one of the deceased victims and another man. Philly, unfortunately, wasn't the only place facing fatalities. Tennessee, Michigan, South Carolina and other states reported gun violence over the weekend that led to 10 deaths in total, including the attack in Philadelphia. Now, while there are a slew of gun reform bills expected to be voted on this week in the House, according to Punchbowl News, and a realistic path to legislation is, of course, through the Senate, where a compromised gun reform bill could include a version of a red flag law, some enhanced background checks on gun sales, although not the broad background checks bill passed by the House last year and or funding for mental health uh, programs. So I think we do we always see a little bit of a spike in violence, I think, around uh, this time of the year as the weather's nicer out. Finally, everyone is outside, unfortunately, shooting each other. Um, <laughs> It's, that's, an, that's an interesting way to put it, Robbie. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make of, uh, of the... So we talked on the show a lot about the red flag laws. We had David French on, who's like a major conservative uh, proponent of those. I, I think I'm open in theory to red flag laws, although I, I guess I am somewhat confused that, you know, the definition of an unstable person, you're, you know, people reporting their neighbors or people known to them could also someday include just like political dissidents or people who are crazy but not actually dangerous or something like that. I understand that perspective, but I guess for me, it's that we already do this in some way. As a public defender in criminal court, we take people's guns the minute the minute they're accused of a charge. They give them an order mm-hmm. of protection. They say they can't have any weapons. So to me, it's not really any different than anything we've been engaging in the whole time. We're just focusing on it now. It's more like a, a kind of restraining order type situation, exactly. right? Exactly. Right now, we're, we're concerned. There's a red flag. There's something yeah. that leads us to believe that you might be a danger. So let's take this from you in the interim and figure out what's going on so that nothing can happen. Or at the very least, we're not sitting here with egg on our face like we could have prevented this. Right. Because in so many of these cases, and I'm going to talk about this again on my radar today, my last like eight radars have been about this, the, the, the number of, of, of common people who do act responsibly in the, in the, or in the mass shooter scenario, in the yeah. dangerous person with a gun scenario, who do speak up, who do report this person, and then there's no follow-up or, exactly. or not appropriate follow-up by law enforcement. Exactly. So many of these shootings we've been seeing, right, literally we see that they've been called the police on before. We see manifestos, YouTube videos, entire just a laundry list of a paper trail of evidence in ways that yeah. we could have stopped this. So I think that this is a good way for us to go about trying to address this problem. Especially if we're going to pivot, and I think... The only way we, I mean, given that there is a lot of support for gun rights in this country, there are a lot of guns already, you know, we debate a lot, you know, what steps could actually even be taken to, to restrict the guns themselves, and it's very fraught. 
so maybe the conversation needs about, well, okay, well, this is the kind of person who ha can have access to a firearm yes. rather than this is the kind of firearm that can be available. You know, I think it's a, it's a mild compromise, right? Like mm -hmm. if you see on both sides, we see, you know, on one side feels like almost any, you know, proposal for any kind of gun regulation is a violation of the rights. And on the other side, you see some of us that want, you know, bans completely. I think it's a middle ground, right? Okay, we don't necessarily touch your guns. You still have your guns, but we're saying, hey, these people that are giving us pause, let's maybe right. not let them have crazy, no guns. Yeah. Right. Well, according to the New York Times, Democrats are facing pressure ahead of the midterms to crack down on crime. With lawmakers such as New York Mayor Eric Adams and candidates in Maryland, California, and Oregon ramping up anti-crime rhetoric. This comes as the head of the Democratic Party, President Biden, is reportedly frustrated at being unable to turn the tide after a wave of challenges uh, hitting his administration from not only gun violence, inflation, COVID, Ukraine, they can't do anything right. Um, yeah, look, crime, escalating crime is a, is a major concern of voters. Uh, it, I want to balance concerns about crime with obviously respect for civil liberties and not being totally thrilled with the idea of giving police more resources given how well they have their track record. Right. But, you know, that, how do you answer, you know, how does someone like yourself, who I know is a major believer in criminal justice reform, you know, from the, the left perspective, I, I'm not I, I'm not sure people are satisfied with the answers being proposed. Well, they're not trying any of the any of the answers that are being proposed by the left. Right. It's hard to say, oh, we're not satisfied or we don't like this approach. Or it wouldn't work when you never actually try it. The only approach we have in place is giving billions of dollars to policing and that's not changing anything. And in the case of Eric Adams, New York City gives more money to policing and everything than anybody right. else. And we've given more. Nothing's changed. So if you continue to say we have this increased problem with violence, increased problem with crime, but we are only employing that method that you like and giving more and more to it, clearly I think we should try something different. And when Eric Adams talks about gun violence, I need him to talk about the fact that NYPD shot and killed two people like in the last like two mm -hmm. weeks. So he needs mm -hmm. to discuss that. Mm -hmm. yeah, but that said, I mean, like, don't you think that more police? I see. I think there were more police, and they were actually like on the streets. If they were actually, they're on the streets. Are the they? Streets, but, Robbie. They're just ignoring. They're just like somebody comes and stabs somebody while they're getting over the ATM machine, and That's they're just, just not like, oh, what I they didn't do. see that. That's, well, right. That's the problem. That's They're just not, not what they do. They but it's care. not a lack of training. It's not a lack of resources. It's not a lack of presence. We have police. You see police anywhere you go in New York City, tons of them in hordes, you know, on their phone, chilling, doing something, harassing people for jumping the turnstile, petty things. But they're just not interested in addressing and dealing with this bigger crime. But it's not a lack of resources or training or that they're Did not Did you hear there. about the police that let the person drown over the weekend? <sighs> that story? Listen, like... it's uh, That was in, uh, I'm pulling it up. That was in Tempe, Arizona. Um, it, right. This it was a now it was a mentally disturbed ish person, and uh, I'm not. Uh, there was some uh, suggestion that him and his wife or domestic partner or something. There, I, I think he's an unhoused person. Yeah. But they were having some kind of episode. I, it didn't seem like it was particularly scary or violent. For some reason, the police came. That's how it is. And then uh, and then we're talking to them, and then he he became irate. He it was by a lake. He wandered into the lake, and was starting to drown. And they they said. We're not gonna. We're not gonna stop you from drowning, and, and it, then he did drown. And, and it died. brings up two excellent points: that one, police don't actually have a duty to help us, right? They don't. Yeah. They constitutionally don't, which is insane that we put all our resources and our faith in this entire body of people that they're supposed to help us, but then they don't actually have to, and we see very often that they choose not to. And then it brings us to another uh, issue that when people have issues or people have help, people call 911, they don't necessarily want the police. They're even asked. They say, "Oh, I want, you know, I want mental health. I want an ambulance. I want this." But who shows up every time? The police. And then the police decide, 
oh, we're either going to not help or we're going to arrest somebody. And they have this tremendous protection against liability if Absolutely. they do something wrong, uh, which if you're going to argue they should have that, <laughs> there should be a duty for them to, to do an affirmative, positive intervention to help people. Right, right. If we have a system in place that says, you know what, I'm going to give you immunity. I don't want you to be, you know, uh, held personally liable, all these different things. And we should have some method in place where they're regularly heard accountable, maybe in a lesser format than the criminal courts. But I think they should, right? If they're arresting people all day, every day, why are they above the criminal court for their actions. But if we have that, we should, we should be we should be holding them more accountable or at the very least requiring them to do their job. All right. Well, I'm going to also be criticizing the police in my radar. So to veer topics slightly before we get there, uh, what do you make of the suggestion that this is all, ref you know, this this violence we're seeing, this mm -hmm. uniquely American violence um, is reflective of some mental health crisis in this country? Um, listen, I don't, it's not that I don't think we have mental health issues. I think the problem is too often when we have systemic problems or societal issues that we see in a large way, instead we, we shift to this mental health narrative in order to put it on an individual. That's what tends to happen. And they individualize the cases rather than look at these larger issues, right? It can't just all be, America's not the craziest place on earth, can't be. I have a hard time believing that it's the nuttiest place on earth. That would surprise me too. Yeah, it would surprise me. So if we have all these issues and we're repeatedly seeing these, um, different problems, right? We have gun violence, we have gun violence, and we also are like the largest manufacturer of guns. We have, you know, easy access to guns. Clearly there's something there. So I think it's about um, us not addressing these root causes enough. Mm, interesting. All right, well, coming up next, I will tell you what's on my radar. I already gave you a preview so you can guess, but stick around for the actual thing. So Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, Angeli Gomez is the mother of two kids who attend school at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. Now, on the day of the horrific mass shooting, which claimed the lives of 19 children and two adults, Gomez's kids both had graduation ceremonies. Gomez is a farm worker. She attended the ceremonies, she hugged her kids, and then she went back to her job. Shortly thereafter, she learned that an armed gun gunman, who we now know to be 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, was attacking the school. So she drove back 100 miles per hour, returned to the school. Here's what she told CBS News in an interview that aired over this weekend. U.S. Marshals started coming toward my car saying that um, I wasn't allowed to be parked there. And uh, he said, well, we're going to have to arrest you because you're being very uncooperative. I said, well, you're going to have to arrest me because I'm going in there. And I'm telling you right now, I don't see none of y'all in there. Y'all are standing with snipers and y'all are far away. I'm, if y'all don't go in there, I'm going in there. He, Right, immediately put me in cuffs. She says after Uvalde police officers told marshals to uncuff Gomez, she ran towards the school. As soon as they uncuffed me, I jumped that first gate fence. And once I jumped it, I went to my son's class. And I knocked on the door and I remember the teacher saying, um, I'm like, hey, they're already, they're already um, bulge cutting the fence to get me. She's like, you think we have time to get out? I said, you'll have time. I'm going to run for my other son. Once she was assured her son was okay, Gomez ran to get her other child, encountering more officers who tried to stop her. So I start yelling and I'm being a cooperative and I'm like, well, y'all aren't doing shit. What are y'all doing? Y'all ain't doing Y'all need to be in here. Give me your best. Somebody give me a best. I'm something. I started paying attention to how far the shots were being. So that I knew the shooter was all the way still by my first son's class. So when I went to my son, my second son's door, the teacher didn't want to open the door for me. So that's when they started um, escorting me out. And as I, as I see that they're opening my son's door, I go run for my son and I get him. A mother, a farm worker, 
No training in combat scenarios, no body armor, not even in possession of a weapon herself, she nevertheless entered the school to do what needed to be done, rescue her children. And she was able to do that, thank goodness. Meanwhile, the Uvalde police were waiting and waiting and waiting. In fact, they waited for more than an hour to confront the shooter, who was inside a classroom with kids, some of whom were still alive, frantically calling 911, begging, begging law enforcement to do something to save them, save their wounded and dying classmates. According to Gomez, the police spent more effort restraining parents who wanted to go in and kill the shooter than doing anything about the shooter themselves. I don't need you to protect me. Get away from me. I don't need your protection. If anything, I need you to go in there with me to go protect my kids. And if anything, they were being more aggressive on us. They were more pertained on keeping us back than getting into that school. Ultimately, 19 officers gathered outside the classroom that contained the shooter. They were led by Peter Arredondo, chief of the Uvalde School District's police department. All police training pertaining to the shooting, to school shootings, requires that police immediately rush the shooter, no matter how outgunned they are. But Arredondo wanted to wait for more backup which goes against everything that both the police and the public have learned about mass shooter scenarios ever since Columbine in 1999. You don't wait. You go in. Iridondo is no longer cooperating with the investigation into his actions. Not surprising there. And now there was one other incredible detail from Gomez's interview with CBS. Watch this. You know, she, she's on probation for some charges from uh, about a decade ago and that she received a call from someone in law enforcement telling her that if she keeps talking to media or if she, you know, keeps sharing her story, uh, that she might face some kind of violation for obstruction of justice. So she was holding back from sharing her story until now because a judge told her that she was brave and that uh, her, her probation would be shortened. So that gave her the courage to talk to us. Her uncle is the one uh, who called me and said, you have to hear her story, and I'm so glad he did. So not only did the police fail to do anything meaningful to stop the shooter for more than an hour, not only did they obstruct, handcuff, and arrest parents who understandably tried to take matters into their own hands, they also tried to cover their tracks by attempting to intimidate this mother into silence. There is a war on parents in this country. In previous radars, I've spoken frequently about our out-of-touch education system, about school boards that ignore the needs of frustrated parents and families, that kept schools closed and then kept young kids masked far beyond what was reasonable during the pandemic. Now, these school boards frequently refuse to explain controversial curriculum and policy changes, and they lash out at parents who ask questions at their meetings. So many conservatives have been rightly critical of this behavior when it comes to public school teachers, activists, educators, and school boards. But some on the right have a soft spot for law enforcement. Let's be clear about that. And they tend to overlook the fact that the police are often just as unresponsive to the needs of the people, if not more unresponsive. There's no more gut-wrenching example than Uvalde. Like the education system, our policing system needs fundamental reform. What happened at Robb Elementary is one of the greatest failings of a local public institution in our history. And there must be justice for all those lives lost. So this is really a, a message I have to, to conservatives who, again, I, I agree with. I have also been critical of a lot of the schooling decisions made, a lot of the, and, and there's been a war on parents kind of framing of how that is. The sure. out-of-touch local officials not providing families what they needed during the pandemic. Uh, we should 
I agree with that, but we need to, that's, that skepticism of public institutions needs to, they need to bring that out a step further and include uh, a, a police who behaved this abominably, who, who tried to arrest this woman. And look, I get that they don't, they didn't want all the parents to like rush in. It, that's fine if they had a plan to do that. But the, the, the impulse to rush in is the correct one. It's what all the training suggests. It's what they, they trained for at this school like two months ago. Yeah. All of the training says you don't, it's not a, you can't negotiate with these types of people. You just, you just rush in and that's what you're supposed to do. And they waited and waited and waited while people baffling. were dying. The, the, the Border Patrol team says they were baffled. They had, they were, yes. they were baffled. The Border Patrol team said we are baffled <laughs> trying to figure out why they have us waiting. We are baffled as to why they're not doing anything. They were there. They were Arrived. The Border Patrol team arrived at 12 o'clock, between 12 o'clock and 12, 10 p.m. with shields, tactical shields, ready to go in. And they said the police would not let them. So for an hour of pleading with them, they just decided, you know what, I'm going to override it and I'm going to go in and I'm going to go save whoever's left. Yeah, thank God. Thank God. So, so but and this is such a clear, like, more people could have lived. Yes. If, if they, I know we, we, like, we can say that now. Absolutely. There's enough information. Absolutely. They, conceivably, if they'd gone in fast, I guess conceivably they could have even taken longer if, yes. the, if the Border Patrol had not said, to hell with yes. us, we're going in. So it is such a, so yeah, so just to, I mean, we already know this, but just to hear more confirmation uh, from these parents, I, I can't imagine, if I was a, if you were a parent, of, of a kid who had, obviously, if you were a kid who died in this, you're going to be outraged and furious and sad, and I don't know how your life can even go on. It's so horrible. One of, one of but imagining that. that it could have been differently if the police had done what they are absolutely, unquestionably trained to do. The reports say they received the, ch the children and the teachers that were hiding in the classroom called the police at least six times to come inside, and they wouldn't. And the little girl who made the call who did not live, Maya, her dad was outside, and they arrested. They went to arrest oh the father. God. Yeah, she Just. It is, as someone who is extremely critical of the police, I spend my every day trying to explain to the police, I, I was shocked. I could not right. believe it was this bad. I'm like, no way, no way. I wrote an op-ed for Teen Vogue, and even going into that about this, I'm like, there's absolutely no way when I put this, put this, right. no way, no, no way that this is. This story has through. no bottom. It just, it gets, gets worse, worse every time you realize it. The, the border patrol team says not only were they baffled as to why they wouldn't let them in. They said they also were baffled as to where the local SWAT team is. Cause they have one, they have a local, they have yeah. a police department. They have their own. This probably had a itself. marijuana bus to take care of or <laughs> some, something. Some, yeah. Something like that. They said yeah. over 20 different law enforcement agencies responded and the police said the Uvalde's would not let them go in, would not let them. The school resource in. officer wasn't there, drove past asked the shooter and confronted a random teacher. That is the insanest thing I've ever heard. The fact that they said, they said there was a 911 call at 11.30 a.m. At 11.31, he drives past the shooter. I know. I'm just like, why would you even tell us? <laughs> like, it's, 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 it's absolutely insane. I knew it was bad when I saw mainstream media have to say, oh, they lied, oh, they changed their story. Yeah. The fact that you can find mainstream media having to say, hey, the police's story changed 12 times. There are major discrepancies. You go from originally, we confronted the shooter to we didn't confront the shooter. We, we drove by him. Then it's, yeah. oh, it, it is insane. And the fact they, they tased parents, there were parents that were uh, pinned to the ground, arrested, tased, pepper sprayed. They spent more energy policing these terrified parents than they did the actual shooter in the school. They had their backs to the school while they policed the parents. It's, yeah. it's absurd. It is like I said, I think it is the clearest demonstration we've seen of police ineptitude, failure, and just callous disregard for lives. It's insane. They let a they let a fourth grade class be slaughtered, and it didn't have to happen. That's absolutely terrible. Well, we'll keep delivering up. Unfortunately, the new updates uh, that keep coming in about how how even worse this was than you can possibly imagine. Uh, but we'll have more rising right after this.
conservative activists at the Western Conservative Summit in Denver this weekend chose Ron DeSantis as their preferred 2024 presidential nominee for the second year in a row, with the governor taking 71% of the vote in a straw poll compared to former President Donald Trump's 67%. Trump has yet to formalize a decision on whether he'll run in 2024. However, advisors told NBC News that the former president is, quote, bored in Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> anxious to re-enter national politics as a candidate, not as a kingmaker. Two people in Trump's orbit told NBC News they had been asked informally to hold July 4th as a date for a possible announcement. Mm. Mm. What do you think, Alimi? He's going to run? Trump? Probably, yeah. <laughs> Listen, yeah. the way the way it's been discussed, it's been discussed very matter-of-factly, like the sky is blue that Donald Trump is going to run. So I've pretty much settled on that being my reality and to look forward to being upset about that when the day comes. But if we get DeSantis, too, oh, my heart. My heart cannot take it. Um, I mean, I, that's what, what do you think? I think that's what's going to happen. I, look, I think Trump can help himself. He, now, hearing that he's bored, uh, <laughs> you know, why not? Obviously, he's got to be looking at, uh, at Biden as just an incredibly weak uh, president uh, who is, you know, approval numbers are way underwater, who has all these uh, issues with inflation, with, with the war, with, uh, with you know, the, pan- the pandemic not having been a, a totally uh, more deaths under, under Biden uh, than actually under Trump. Uh, so I think Trump won't be able to handle it, uh, won't be able to resist getting back yeah. into the race. But DeSantis, like, I, this is his time. This whole idea that, no, he needs to yeah. wait till Trump gets tired. I don't think he needs to wait. I think now is his time. And it's going to be quite a battle between the two. But I absolutely can see DeSantis at this point now, given all the favorable attention and coverage he's getting from right wing media loves DeSantis. They know they love Trump. Don't get me wrong. They actually (laughs) really love DeSantis. And even the people who didn't have a natural affinity for Trump, but, you know, they saw the writing on the wall and they got on board. Those people prefer DeSantis. And then even a lot of the really Trumpy people prefer to Santa. And that should so. terrify us. I, 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 could, I could see it. I, it's crazy because a year ago I said, no, it's Trump's if he wants it. No one can ever. Oh, my God. It's like they ne- the party never says no yeah. to him. DeSantis is the figure. And that is terrifying yeah. because the Republicans love Trump like we love Beyonce. So if they love DeSantis more, what is that? Yeah. Terror. Fair. I Listen, I don't know if he should wait by virtue of in terms of um, his winnability for the side of people, but I hope he waits. And when I say waits, I mean until a next lifetime when I am not around. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be a part of it. No. no. Who would you prefer? I mean, would you prefer Trump or DeSantis? Okay. Let me, this is not, we can receive this as a compliment or whatever. But Republican, I mean, what like, I, what yeah, I will one of them's going to win. Yeah. One of them is going to be president. Barring some crazy, unforeseen circumstance, Biden will not be president in 2024. Well, a Republican no. well, is going to win. I don't the even way think Biden should going. run. Well, it, 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 there's no Democrat that I think is going to win anything in 2024 because it, it's just a, an absolute disaster. Nothing is going well. So you have to pick because this is going to be your choice. Trump or DeSantis, which is it? Shalalami is not choosing between those terrible demons. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, a third, I'll be voting third party, I presume, uh, like I always do. I so, think uh, either way, I will say this for Republicans. I have been, I'm always very critical of the fact that I feel like Democrats do not serve their base enough. You know, Democrats do a lot of criticizing the left and what progressives and blah, 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 the very people that are on their side of the campus, crazies and blah, blah. And they should just, you know, speak to that and get a candidate that we like. But I will give Republicans this. They do not care how crazy and how much we hate the Trumps and the DeSantis. They're like, ooh, you like it? We got it. We're going to give you DeSantis. So... I, I think but it might be a good move for them as a stra- I mean, What's wrong with I mean, him, Kim? Look, you know, we, we don't yeah, got the time, yeah, like, Kim. Listen, I, I'm a, I was a Bernie Sanders voter. I voted Bernie, Bernie Sanders. I've considered myself a leftist progressive for years and years. Backed Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders in the last election. Uh, but going for, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to lie. I like DeSantis. I, I hope he wins. I mean, that's the guy. I, out of all of the candidates that are out there, DeSantis is the guy that I would prefer. I think that he's good on the environment. You know, when he got in and became governor of Florida, he immediately began a climate council. That was so you 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 can't hold against him anything environment and say that the guy doesn't care about that like you could about Trump. Um, there are definitely things I don't like about DeSantis. There are things that he's done, such as gone after protesters, made laws against them that are pretty harsh. Uh, I, I don't like the culture stuff, you know, getting into the whole like, oh, we're going to ban teachers from saying X, Y, Z thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not really into that. But to me, that's fairly inconsequential consider, con- compared to the crap that the Democrats have been doing that have actually been ruining our lives. I mean, if DeSantis does some things here and there that I don't agree with, I can deal with that. I'm not going to agree with any politician or any, you know, anybody and their platform 100% of the time. I need to agree with like 80, 85% of it. But DeSantis, I feel like, actually is representing his people in Florida. I feel like he's actually doing that and not representing as much as other politicians, the corporate billionaire class. So, I mean, I, I don't, like I said, there's things I don't like about DeSantis, but there are other things that from people that like freedom, you know, he went in there and the, the the legislature was unwilling to decriminalize marijuana. The people had voted on it. And DeSantis went in there right away when he became governor in Florida and said, hey, listen to the people. The people have done this. You need to do it. They want to decriminalize marijuana. So I don't, I mean, I there's a lot I like about DeSantis. I don't think he has the downfalls that Trump has. I think he's free and clear of that while still being a for the people populist style candidate. I can I live with that. It's better than the alternatives. I don't like him at all, but I'm not meant to like him, right? I'm not his base. I'm not on that side of the aisle at all, right? I, I definitely hate him, which says something which says something very positive for Republicans. I will agree. I think it is probably a better move to go to Santos over Trump because at least not only do you have somebody that's very, very well liked and very much so serves this base and this contingency that, you know, I may not like but exists, right? Um, it also moves away from this idea that we're still in the Trump. You know what I mean? The constant back and forth of Donald Trump and how we feel about that as a nation and what we've already been through. It at least allows the appearance of starting anew and someone that's, you know, so if I were Republicans, I would go with DeSantis. But as a, someone who's not that, I am praying, I am praying that y'all do not, <laughs> do not. Well, well Kim, you know, who it, would it's you interesting. Prefer? It's who interesting. would you prefer on the left? I'm just curious. If so, if you don't want Biden, who do you want? In a, well, the Democrats uh, the are not going to do anything I want, Kim. So it's really, it's no, it's no point they even hypothesizing the, about my dreams. Stuck. And but, but Biden is the most popular person in the party, which is not an endorsement of their chances at really? all. Is no. he, child? I don't know. What about Fetterman know. wildcard? Fetterman not is my not boy, even who's healthy in, who's enough to win the uh, Pennsylvania race. Uh, someone in, uh, in our... Uh, I mean, they, there's plenty of people they could said. get to, well, right. that would become popular. They get Michelle Obama. Right? I mean, I just don't think Demo- I just I don't, don't think Democrats have the same drive anymore. to 
to to humor and speak to their base the way Republicans do. That's what I think. I think Republicans are able to create right. these kind of candidates that while they are extremely polarizing and we hate them on the left, they're very much so speaking to the needs and belief systems and everything that happens on the right. Democrats don't do the same. When we like people, you know, and on the left, or we think they disregard them. Socialists, crazy, totally. defend, blah, blah, right. ignore. That's how they act. So we're going to get more of... Biden, which I could have told you was going to go this way. I, I still, we got to see how the next few years go. Like right now, Biden is in an incredibly weak position. Mm -hmm. the, the Democrats are going to get destroyed in midterms. If this is as bad as it gets, if it, eventually we get inflation under control, if if uh, if uh, Ukraine wraps up, if if the pandemic is really done, I'm not saying any of these things are likely, <laughs> but there is. It, if this is the the worst moments of the Biden presidency, he will have he will be a more formidable opponent than that. It will still be it's going to be quite a race regardless. I can't imagine him ever getting so much more popular again where he's like in a commanding position. But incumbency has a lot of advantages. Um, it's um, it's it's going like, to be not, a, not right now. I just can't beliefs. imagine any advantage at this point when the when everything. The election was held today. Yes, I, and I think he's ugh. he's going to. I think the Republican challenger is going to be a favorite. My belief, there, even Trump. Has, I said before. I said you know, Trump is like the only Republican who I think who could possibly lose to Biden. Now I don't even think Trump would lose to Biden. I think I, Trump would be. Yeah. I honestly, and I think he knows that. Don't think people yeah. voted. This is and you know I think that this is true. I do not think people voted for Biden. I think they voted against Donald Trump. Yeah. And so oh, yeah, I think sure. with Donald sure. Trump, you know, and a lot of people are not paying him any mind from he's not you know in office. He's not on Twitter. So a lot of people have just completely kind of let, you know, Donald Trump fall to, to the advantage. wayside. And so then it is, was, you're absolutely correct. It is to his advantage because now there's just the focus on the dissatisfaction with Joe Biden. But we right? got to know, I want to know what some of DeSantis's political views are on some of these questions that there's been no really reason for him to address yet because he's a governor. He's not a national figure. But for instance, we, we actually we had a guest on earlier today, my friend Jim Antle, uh, who was talking about the changing Republican positions on foreign policy, how now the only opposition to this proxy war with Russia is actually coming within the political sphere is coming from Republicans, not all of them, but some of them. Right. And there's none of it on the Democratic side. Where is DeSantis on the kind of changing lines of of where of the ideology and foreign policy? We, we don't really have any reason to know. He doesn't have right. any reason to opine on that. Well, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm curious to learn. Yeah. That'll be one of I think one of the, the tests he could pass to distinguish himself uh, he's, he's from, from the old Republican Party. Well, he's given glimpses of what uh, of how he would be. I mean, he's definitely pro-Israel, so extremely pro-Israel. But at the same time, he's also shown himself to be more about let's give money back. You know, let's let's focus on America. Let's he is kind of an America first style candidate. So I would be unless that shifts, I think that he would. One of the reasons he doesn't talk about it as much is because he's kind of like, we've got problems here at home that we need to be focused mm. on. That's the right attitude, in my opinion. Mm. All right. Well, we will keep paying attention to that. Uh, for now, Dr. Oz is officially the Republican Party's candidate for Pennsylvania Senate, and we will discuss that coming up. After three weeks, the fierce battle in the Pennsylvania GOP Senate primary is over. David McCormick conceded Friday to Trump-endorsed candidate Dr. Oz. The ballots were recounted last week, and ultimately, the Trump favorite, bested McCormick by only 972 votes. Oz took to Twitter following his victory, tweeting this. I received a gracious phone call from David McCormick, and I'm tremendously grateful for his pledge of support in the fall election. We share the goal of a brighter future for Pennsylvania and America. So he'll go up against progressive John Fetterman in the fall. Joining us to discuss is Hill reporter Julia Manchester and Real Clear Politics White House reporter Philip Wegman. Welcome to you both. 
Thank you. So, Julia, I'll start with you. And I'm sure, you know, Republicans are relieved to finally um, have a candidate at all. Uh, However, the Democrats have to be a little bit uh, concerned, given all the news about Fetterman's health. And I I thought Fetterman was going to make an extremely strong general election uh, candidate. But obviously, you know, with all that's going on uh, with him, uh, his his ability even to campaign seems very diminished. Uh, You know, what are your thoughts on what's going on? Look, I think the health of a candidate is always very important and talked about during campaigns. I mean, going back to 2008 when, uh, you know, political watchers questioned John McCain's uh, health being a very um, old person running for president. And we know that obviously in 2020, both the health of President Trump and uh, now President Biden were both questioned given their ages that they were running for president. So I think right now um, with someone like John Fetterman, who is younger, and who is having these health issues, that definitely raises some concern as to how much he will be out in the field and really doing that retail politic campaigning. Because we know that at least going from the GOP side of the aisle, enthusiasm was incredibly high during that closed primary. Now, the enthusiasm was also high on the Democratic side, but I think it will take both candidates really going out to not only rev up their own bases, but also turn out uh, the voters in the middle. So it's obviously something to really watch out for, but I think you are going to see the Democratic campaign apparatus really um, from the top down coming out and trying to support Fetterman as much as possible. Pennsylvania is really turning out to be probably the closest, if not one of the most watched Senate races and important Senate races this cycle. And what do you think, Philip? I think looking at this race from the other side of the aisle, the takeaway here is that Donald Trump is a weak kingmaker. He comes in and he endorses Oz, and then this comes down to the wire by about uh, 970 votes. I'm not, I I don't remember the exact figure, Uh, but um, you know, it's interesting because in Oz, you have a candidate who a lot of conservatives are very hesitant about. Certainly, he has the star power like the former president did, uh, but on a number of different policy issues that conservatives have long held close to their heart, whether it's the uh, the abortion question or whether or not it's guns. Um, you can compare and contrast the current position that Oz holds with a position that he took uh, back when he was on daytime television. Um, adding also to sort of the the, the drama here is that you had uh, Trump sort of try and stave off a, a populist candidate who is more in the mold of, of him, uh, Kathy Barnett. And she sort of made this argument that she, um, you know, was, was was the true MAGA uh, uh, dark horse in this race. And, and, and you know, after Trump sort of uh, washed his hands of her candidacy, uh, she seemed to argue that MAGA was, was bigger than him. So you've got all sorts of different threads to, uh, to pull on here. What I'm going to be watching uh, as we get closer to this race is whether or not Mastriano, the uh, Republican nominee for governor, someone who is very much in Trump's image when it comes to his eagerness to relitigating the, the 2020 election. In fact, this guy was even at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, What I'm watching is to see if he's a drag on Oz and if he um, sort of diminishes some of the increased turnout that we saw during the primary. 
That's a very interesting perspective. I think I would have been inclined to think that because this was a Trump-endorsed candidate and he won, that that looked favorably for Trump. But that's an excellent point you bring up. It is a small, a small margin. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with that point as someone who's not pro-Trump. I like that. <laughs> uh, you know, the other interesting thing in this race is that as uh, so a Dr. Oz. Uh, is uh, is Muslim would be I, I think the first Muslim senator right if if elected and you know, it's it's funny when you know these milestones are cleared by Republicans just you know despite the uh, the first uh, uh, a male Muslim despite the you know the Republicans are anti-Islam Trump in particular you know hostility to foreigners and and all sorts of things the rhetoric uh, you know does this. Is this just another one of those little indications, Julia, that really the Republican Party is it is putting together a, a multiracial uh, working class kind of it's not just, you know, only only affluent white people or something anymore. It, it, it in some ways pull, uh, it is is pulling in the kind of range of diversity that Democrats are struggling to keep as part of their coalition. Yeah, I think you could definitely see that argument coming from Republicans, especially when they talk about Dr. Oz. Now, Dr. Oz is obviously someone who is very affluent. He is a celebrity, but I could definitely see them uh, talking about the diversity he brings to the table. What's interesting and taking a step back is to see how the RNC in particular has been really pushing uh, for diversity in the Republican Party, particularly among African Americans, Hispanics, and Asian Americans. We saw in California during the 2020 uh, cycle that Republicans, uh, Young Kim and Michelle Steele, for example, were very much trying to cater towards that Asian American community in Southern California. And they did very well with that. And we saw the same thing with the Hispanic community in Southern Texas on the border, as well as in South Florida, and Republicans saw gains. Now, talking to the RNC, they are very much trying to make uh, some sort of an inroad with the African-American community, but it's not lost on them that that would definitely be um, a bit of a tall order to accomplish this cycle that will take time and lots of years, because we know that the black community has really been a back bone of the Democratic vote. So I think it sort of shows how Republicans are absolutely trying to tout diversity because they know that in order to survive, in order to get more votes in a country that is diversifying, they need to have candidates and voters that reflect that. I think often a lot of criticism of diversity, especially from progressives and on the left, is that it's in appearance only, right? It doesn't really make a difference if you get a room and you get a bunch of people that may look different, but the views and the ideologies and what's being espoused is the same. And I think that people might see that like this, in this a situation like this. Yes, Dr. Oz is Muslim, but still, right? but still, and the different viewpoints. So I'm not sure if I would give this as uh, Republicans being diverse. But or, if you Democrats know, only have a skin-deep commitment to diversity anyway. I don't then... necessarily disagree with you, Robbie. <laughs> Trust me, I don't. I don't. I do not disagree with you. But I, I, I would argue that Republicans are worse. <laughs> uh, Phil, are Democrats just like... Think, looking at obviously, we wish you know Fetterman all the uh, best, greatest recovery in the world. And again, I, I think he was, he is a very uh, 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 strong general election candidate. So to have him kind of, uh, kind of you know, not being able to run the, the you know the strongest race he possibly can for for what seem like kind of significant health issues, just it has to is like an. Ex Example that the Democratic Party is just like cursed right now. Some black mage put a <laughs> put a dark spell on them, or I, I, what do you think? 
it's another crisis for these guys. Um, I'm, I'm clearly I'm, just... I'm getting into like Dungeons and Dragons mode, which I have later today. But go ahead. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a path that you will go down that I will not follow. Um, so I'm really curious to see how how Fetterman uh, does. Uh, there was the note from his physician saying that if he made a, a couple of different tweaks to um, you know his routine, that, that he would be healthy enough to run for the Senate and then if he elected uh, serve there. You know, we'll find out, right? And we we all wish him nothing but the best. What's interesting about this guy is that he talks like a progressive but he looks like a trump supporter right i mean you're not going to see uh the lieutenant governor of pennsylvania show up to a fish fry in jeans and a, a blue uh you know button down shirt with the sort of standard issue politician i'm a normal person look you know um <laughs> there, there's some legitimacy uh to the to this guy uh, you know, his health is a is a big question, though, right? And I think that we've been through this type of news cycle before. Uh, Julia laid it out really well, whether or not it was Trump or Biden, or even Bernie Sanders, who who had a, a health scare as well with his heart. But, you know, as we've seen, Bernie Sanders is not going anywhere, uh, much to right. the chagrin of both, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats. I think this will be a interesting race. Um, and I think that, you know, Fetterman will make Oz uh, work for it. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is going to come down to, you know, perhaps, um, you know, another photo finish like we saw in the Republican primary. Yeah, I suspect so. Well, Julia, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Russian President Vladimir Putin hit back at a U.S. deal to send long-range missile systems to Ukraine, warning that if the aid goes through, the Russian military will seek new Ukrainian targets. In a new op-ed for responsible statecraft, Jim Antle, politics editor at the Washington Examiner, argues that congressional Republicans' resistance to U.S. military intervention in Ukraine demonstrates the viability of an anti-war future for the GOP. Antle writes, quote, the conservative libertarian coalition that has, for over a decade, sought to defang the GOP hawks are seeing this as their big moment. Jim joins us now to expand. Welcome to Rising. Good to be here. Yeah, so, you know, we've, uh, we've worked together uh, for, in the past, so it's good to see you again, right. Jim. Uh, and, you know, you, like I, have kind of been an advocate for a more uh, a libertarian G GOP, particularly on foreign policy issues. And, and I know you've, you've talked about how actually the GOP, until the modern era, had a long history of opposition uh, to, to various wars throughout actually the 20th century. Um, so do you, right. do you think that is the direction the party is going to? It, it not even, it's sort of a return to, if anything. Yeah, I mean, there was a debate that the Republican Party needed to have at the end of the Cold War that it didn't end up having. And then certainly the 9-11 terrorist attacks uh, prevented any even sort of residual after effects of any rethink of foreign policy from taking place. So there was a 20-year a period where the default position uh, on foreign policy for Republicans uh, was very hawkish, even though we were in search of a new Soviet Union to have a, a Cold War against. And I think that that debate is finally beginning to happen, partly because former President Donald Trump, uh, even though he wasn't very philosophically consistent, on these issues certainly had somewhat non-interventionist impulses and that you see some of the more populist Republicans coming up 
as well as obviously the libertarian wing of the party, uh, has a more thoroughgoing skepticism of international intervention, uh, sort of applying some of the, the skepticism of government in action at, at home uh, to government in action abroad. And you're starting to see that a little bit. And as President Biden is perceived as being hawkish in this current conflict in Ukraine, uh, I think that that creates more political incentives for Republicans to speak out against it. Yeah, it was interesting because initially with the Afghanistan pullout that Biden ordered, uh, it looked like finally we had the president who was doing what Trump promised to do and then didn't and what Obama pres uh, promised to do and then didn't, which is, you know, get the troops out. Uh, so I thought actually he might defame the idea that the right is that the Republicans are going to be the non-interventionist party. But then, right. then circumstances uh, arose such that now Democrats are so committed to uh, to this uh, kind of proxy war with, with Russia. And so, and so are some Republicans. But the only virtually the only dissent you're seeing from political figures is on the Republican side. That's right. I mean, still, most Republicans are taking the, the default hawkish position and are and in many cases, they're more hawkish than President Biden. They think that he hasn't done enough to help the Ukrainians, that whatever the Ukrainian government wants, it should get and should be provided by the U.S. taxpayer. But you're not really seeing any opposition to this among the more anti-war progressives in Congress. All of the congressional opposition is coming from the Republican side. Now, is some of that opportunistic? Yes. Uh, some of the same people uh, hitting Biden on this were hitting Biden for getting out of Afghanistan uh, too quickly in their view. So, I mean, not all of this is principled, but a good bit of it is. And so you're starting to see the ascended populist wing of the Republican Party uh, linking up with the more libertarian wing of the party, which has been pretty consistent on these issues for the last you know, decade plus. Uh, coming together and voicing some skepticism about the amount of money spent and what the end game is here. I mean, I think a lot of people are sympathetic to the idea that Russia should not invade Ukraine, but what is the degree of U.S. involvement and to what degree is our involvement lengthening the conflict versus uh, producing uh, some kind of sustainable peace? Hmm. Yeah, where do you think the progressives are on this, Alaimi? Because, I mean, many, I think many very left-leaning or very progressive people who are, who are not, you know, whole bought into the defend Ukraine kind of, kind of stuff, uh, that's what, that's what they're, they're thinking, but there's no, the, on the legislative side, there's no, there are very, almost no Democrats. We had Ilan Omar on here a couple of weeks ago, and she did, you know, voice some opposition to the idea of, like, constantly... Uh, well, boycotting and funding and then funding the weapons, et cetera. But you don't hear a lot of it. It is, it is interesting because you guys are right. There are There is a little bit of uh, philosophical inconsistency on both sides because you're right. Progressives typically are very anti-war, don't get involved. But that is exactly the camp that's very, we should get involved because Russia is this kind of place. And I think it is, you know, an ideological um, disagreement. So I'm not I'm not sure what the answers are as far as, you know, where we should stand or whether or not we think it will lengthen the conflict. I think that might be where the, the, the disagreement is, whether or not us helping or aiding is going to lengthen this or it will help it come to an end sooner. So I'm not sure. I don't have the answers. Jim, how do you think this is could uh, play in, you know, the future uh, political races? I, you know, I'm not sure it matters necessarily so much for the congressional uh, the upcoming midterms, but right. it's possible we see an interesting 
obviously we don't know what Trump's going to do, but we, you know, we could see an interesting kind of showdown between possibly Trump and I, I think I'll presume to be uh, to be DeSantis um, with, you know, with a lot of probably a lot of substantive political similarity, maybe, you know, some slight differences. But how will how will the the given that I think a lot of the base they're probably courting do have a hostility to to the kind of proxy war and you know, Ukraine gets whatever it wants attitude, uh, but but in a, with the establishment does not. So, you know, how could that affect uh, a, a kind of showdown for, for the new leader of the Republican Party? Yeah, and we're run. DeSantis stands on a lot of these issues is really still up in the air. Uh, you know, he's obviously he doesn't have to concentrate very much on that as governor of Florida. So, you know, where he decides to come down, I think, is going to be an important marker. Obviously, uh, former President Trump uh, is skeptical of a lot of these types of interventions. And, you know, he has been criticized uh, as being too pro-Russian in the past. I don't think he's going to be afraid of those types of criticisms. So then the question becomes, you know, if somebody, assuming he runs, uh, you know, is somebody going to want to position themselves against him on that issue as well as other issues? Uh, certainly, I think Mike Pence would be inclined uh, to take the more traditional uh, Cold War era Republican position on this. Uh, I'm not sure that that's where Ron DeSantis would necessarily come down, especially since he's appealing to a base of people uh, who are more skeptical of all of these things. But I think that where you see, I mean, certainly you see Josh Hawley uh, voted against the, the last big Ukraine aid package. Uh, he's been uh, speaking out against NATO expansion. Uh, he's been saying that there should be limits uh, to U.S. involvement in this conflict. He used it the, the conflict, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war as sort of his uh, jumping off point for a broader uh, rejection of neoconservatism, uh, which is the ideology that's most associated with most hawkish, maximally hawkish Republican positions. Uh, so, you you know, you see Matt Gates uh, taking this position. So a lot of younger, ambitious Republicans are aligning themselves uh, with this intervention uh, skeptical position. Uh, so you'd think maybe Ron DeSantis might do the same thing, but that's still up in the air. And so watching what ambitious Republicans do, as well as watching what uh, people attempting to be principled uh, do, uh, might tell you a little bit more about what the Republican future will be. Interesting. Well, Jim, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Emails obtained by U.S. Right to Know suggest the top virologists may have privately discussed all theories of the pandemic's origin in the days after an article dismissed the lab leak theory back in February 2020. Journalist Emily Kopp reports that the group held discussions with Dr. Anthony Fauci and then NIH Director Francis Collins and wrote a report detailing the summary. However, more than six pages of notes from the February 7th discussion are now fully redacted. It's not clear whether the group has concluded the virus arose naturally by that date or whether the lab leak hypothesis was still on the table. But one of the virologists that had set up the meeting was Jeremy Farrar, who emailed Fauci and Collins on February 4th and said he was split 50-50 between a lab origin and a natural origin, leading some to wonder what happened on that February 7th meeting. Investigative reporter at U.S. Right to Know, Emily Kopp, joins us to discuss further, along with our very own Ryan Grimm, co-host of Rising Fridays. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. 
Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, so Emily, you know, break down the latest uh, for us a little bit. Uh, so it now seems like there was at least some serious discussion over this being a real possibility, you know, prior to the kind of uh, uh, clamping down on, on any kind of dissenting discussion on, the, on this topic. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of it is hard to say because um, six pages of notes are redacted. It'd be a lot easier to um, to clarify what was going on here if we knew what was under discussion. Um, but just for background here, your viewers probably know if they followed the story that the lab leak theory was off the table for mainstream media and even censored on Facebook until about this time last year in 2021 when a cache of Anthony Fauci's emails were released under FOIA by the Washington Post and BuzzFeed. And while those emails were heavily redacted, they did sort of indicate that there were a series of discussions between Fauci and some of the world's leading virologists in the pandemic's early days about you know, whether this new novel coronavirus that first emerged in Wuhan might have been related to the work going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, And even more striking, they showed that some of these virologists initially found the genome of SARS-CoV-2 to be inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. Mm. And about a month after these emails were released, Jeremy Farrar, who is the leader of this multi-billion dollar biomedical nonprofit called the Wellcome Trust in the UK, um, who took a leading role in these discussions, um, he describes in his book being really torn up by the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 might have been generated in the lab. And, you know, how after these series of discussions, he was really privately wrestling with this possibility and found it hard to sleep and wondered whether he should alert intelligence agencies. And all of this information was quite understandably a shock to the public and even to COVID reporters like myself who had been told by these same world-leading experts in viruses that even the suggestion that COVID-19 resulted from a lab was beyond the pale. Um, So a few reporters, congressional investigators and um, scientists have for the last year or so been hoping to fill in the blanks here. How did we get from believing that the lab leak theory was possible on February 1st to describing it as crackpot just a few days later? And so, you know, our latest finding is this February 8th email from Farrar um, on the morning of February 8th. He emails the head of the National Academy of Medicine outlining um, the latest summary of these teleconference discussions. And it was later forwarded with an attachment called summary February 7th.pdf. So that led us to conclude that one of these discussions happened on or around February 7th. Um, Unfortunately, we don't know you know, what the latest conclusions were um, because the notes are redacted. Admittedly, I was one of those people that definitely dismissed this theory the moment I heard about it and never looked more into it. So I am delighted to hear more. Ryan, please. Yeah, and to add to what Emily was saying, it, these these are the critical dates, basically, February 1st, 2020, and then February 4th, 2020. And, and what's so interesting about what uh, Right to Know has uncovered here is that it's it's February 8th, so it's adding on to that. So the reason that February 8th is so crucial is that that's that's the date of a, of a conference call. We know that this happened. Uh, you had Francis Collins, you had Fauci, uh, you had uh, Dr. Anderson, you had, you know, Dr. I believe if Dr. Farrar wasn't on, he had somebody on for him. You know, all, all of these top virologists meeting to discuss whether or not uh, this may have come out of the lab. And coming out of it, you have uh, Dr. Dr. Holmes, who later 
uh, co-authors um, with Dr. Farrar this, this article in March tamping down the idea of the conspiracy, saying that he believes it's a 60-40 like lab leak possibility. Farrar says he believes it's 50-50 lab versus, versus nature. A, a lot of the other uh, scientists on that call were all kind of overwhelmingly saying, we don't know either way, but we're, they were somewhere between 50-50 or like 80-20 lab. Like it, it, all of the evidence on February 1st was leading these scientists to say, this is lab leak potential. Over the next couple of days, something, something happens. So by February 4th, they're basically assigning themselves to write an article uh, that becomes the proximate origins paper that then becomes used by Fauci and others to say, look, there's nothing to see here. All of these major scientists looked into this and have concluded that it couldn't have come from the lab. And those same scientists are the ones who were saying just days earlier that it looked like it did come from the lab, that they weren't sure where it came from, but it looked like it did. And so now if you have some type of discussion going on on february 7th which is three days after they have uh, concluded that they're going to write an article uh, a scientific paper basically saying that it didn't come from the lab yet yet in private they're still huddling and discussing whether or not it came from the lab that's extremely interesting now and i'm going to want to hear you talk a little bit about how they're responding to this because i've seen them on twitter saying well there was no teleconference but it, it's wrong to call it a teleconference. And so they're, they're making a very specific denial. But then when you press them and say, okay, well, what are these notes referring to? What, what happened on February 7th that this is a summary of? Can we see these six pages? And they're saying, no, you know, they're, not, they're not sharing that. So what was it? Uh, and and, and what, is a, what is allowing them to say, that there was no teleconference, assuming that they're telling the truth that there wasn't a teleconference and there's some other discussion that happened at that time. They just won't tell us. So, Emily, what, I mean, what have you been able to learn from, uh, from them or from other people familiar with this so far? Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, clear this up. Um, so what the email shows, and again, we're working with primary source documents here, right? We're working with emails that were sent that we were able to obtain through um, freedom of information laws. Um, so they're sort of irrefutable in that way. Um, so Jeremy Farrar says, here's the latest summary of our teleconference. Um, he sends it on the email of February 8th. Um, we know that there's an attachment called summary of February 7th. Um, so that all is sort of irrefutable. We also know that Farrar said in his um, memoir that came out last year that there were a series of these teleconferences right. We know through another email that was released last year that Fauci told um, someone at CDC, I'm participating in a series of teleconferences. Um, but so far, we only really know the details about that February 1st teleconference, um, which was before they started drafting this influential article dismissing the lab leak theory on around February 4th. So this February 7th summary um, could tell us a lot about whether Again, this reflected the scientific method or amounted to a cover-up. Um, and just to clarify here, because I think there's been a lot of muddying of the waters on Twitter, I did reach out to everyone with firsthand knowledge of this um, teleconference and a few other people who I thought might have been forwarded this information um, to ask for the notes. You know, U.S. Right to Know is in the courts fighting to get documents unredacted so we can learn more about this. Um, and I didn't hear from anyone until after the story published 
um, at which point uh, Christian Anderson, uh, Scripps virologist who participated in some of these calls, um, said that there was no teleconference and that this was a conspiracy theory. And we you know, updated our story accordingly. Um, but from my perspective as a reporter, not the most credible person at this point, because the only reason we know that these teleconferences happened and the only reason we know that the lab leak theory was um, in discussion at all is because of FOIA. You know, the folks who were on this teleconference and who drafted this paper have not been transparent with the public about their process. So, um, so take that with a grain of salt. That's incredible. And we're learning, of course, that grants from the NIH to study how uh, MERS, which has a 40 percent mortality rate, obviously much more deadly than COVID, could evolve to better infect humans. And that research is currently being done at UNC and names animal models of human disease as critical reagents for therapeutics and vaccine testing. We know that UNC had been studying coronaviruses before the pandemic actually began. ProPublica reports that at least six researchers were required to undergo medical monitoring following four incidents where they were potentially exposed to what the NIH now confirms were tubes of lab-created coronaviruses. Right. So it just seems so, you know, worrying, or at least something the public has the right to know a lot more about if there was this critical early I mean, this isn't an, even an if. There was a critical early period where relevant scientists thought, uh, thought that lab leak was as likely a cause as not of the origin. And then, and, and then to go from that to you can't even talk about that without being, without being, you know, run out of, uh, run off, literally run off social media, you know, condemned for having spread conspiracy theories in, in, in the media. Um, you know, you know, Ryan, what do you, what do you think about, and then that, but this research is still being done elsewhere in other contexts. And, and that, that to me is the most critical question here. Accountability for the millions of people that were that were killed and the, and the many more that were going to be killed through this pandemic obviously is 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 important, but we don't want to in a few years or a few decades look back at COVID and say that that was the gentle pandemic. Like we we want to take a very close look at how this pandemic started, uh, so that we can write rules around what type of research is worth conducting scientifically and what type of research is simply too risky. And we had uh, either last week or the week before on, on, on Rising, we had a, a debate between two, two biologists over this very question. And I went into it pretty skeptical of gain of function research and uh, came out of that interview uh, just frightened. Uh, and so, and that was from hearing the absolute best case from one of the most you know, uh, well-respected researchers who's making the argument on behalf of continuing to do this research. And so even if it's only possible that it came, that it came out of this lab and was a result of this research, that's extremely important to understand because it has implications for what, uh, what policy can be set. And it, and it also helps to explain some of the ferocity around this question and why you're hearing, you know, so vociferously and so angrily uh, and in such an unhinged way uh, from so many researchers and scientists who are flatly dismissing uh, the, the possibility that it may have come out of the lab because there is, there is mon money and careers are at, are at stake here. They are very much aware 
that the, that the NIH through Dr. Uh, Anthony Fauci is very supportive of gain of function research and wants to continue wants, wants gain of function research to continue. There are people within the NIH who do not, but doc, Dr. Fauci is, is on record saying that it is, you know, this the cost benefit analysis is clear that this is important stuff to be done. And so not only are these scientists, you know, getting in the good graces of the basically the sole grant maker in this field, uh, but they're also defending their entire livelihood, the the thing that the thing that they do. And I just don't think that somebody or a field as conflicted as that should be the one making this decision for the entire world. I don't know if we have any working theories as to why they would cover it up, but I wonder, um, I know for me, I said I was someone that disregarded the theory the moment I heard it. It was less about what the theory was and it was more about who who were spouting the theory and the rhetoric mm-hmm. around it. I know in the earlier yes. days of the pandemic, there was a lot of xenophobia. And so I felt like, you know, this was something being used to, to foster more hate towards Chinese people and Asian people. So that was a reason I dismissed it. So I'm wondering if there's something to that, um, to people not wanting to have the discussion and even maybe the scientists not wanting that to be the narrative, why I would come out and, and then days later they would change it because of the way, you know, we went about discussing it. What do you have thoughts? Let me make one point on that and then go to Emily. Um, yes. So the, what's in, two, two things. Yes, anything that Trump says, the liberals, <laughs> progressives, the left, myself included, were very quickly be like, well, that's probably nonsense. But, some, you know, blind squirrel finds a nut uh, sometimes. So that, yeah. that's one point. Second point would be, Chinese scientists were the first ones to start floating the possibility that it may have leaked out of the, the Wuhan lab. So they, they, they obviously are not xenophobic. Uh, yeah. and, and many Chinese scientists you know, still believe that this is, that, that this is the case. So you can, you can believe this without being, having some hostility to, to oh, China sure. or Chinese people. But oh, so absolutely. Emily, no, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. I think for sure. I don't think any belief in what seems to be, you know, a credible, a credible theory at this point, especially right. 80-20, you said earlier, is pretty startling. Honestly, if you have if you had hostility toward Asian people, you would put this on uniquely specific to China cultural practices like what goes on at wet markets. That that to me actually seems like the more xenophobic explanation than research funded and conducted like supported by by you know u.s uh by by white western colonizing medicine i don't necessarily that is what caused it is the that's the that or that or the and the chinese government it it is uh i I don't disagree i don't think inherently discussing it or who's bringing it up is the problem i think it might have just been in the initial days what it was being packaged and couched with emily we'll we'll leave you uh you know with the the last word you know what is that what is the next step uh, in in trying to you know unravel this puzzle and understand because that's what we just want to understand. Fine, if it was not a lab leak, fine. I have questions about this research. Even <laughs> even if it's not a lab leak, I'm I'm very skeptical of this research. We just really want to know the truth, and we want our scientists to be pursuing whatever the truth is, regardless. But you know, we you know there we have a lot of concerns about the institutional need to kind of have a defend what what's been going on and and, and say that there's no way that could have caused these circumstances. So so what is the next uh, thing that you, your organization, that journalists should be doing to uh, to under, have, understand the picture a little more clearly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so just on the uh, point about how this was couched at first, I think it's important to keep in mind that an investigation into how this pandemic started doesn't um, negate the need to also investigate what went wrong with the U.S. response. Um, I think that's also critically important. Um, 
But just as far as um, next steps, I think U.S. Right to Know has some good leads. Um, I think one of the strongest might be we know that NIH deleted some genetic sequences from its public facing repository at the behest of scientists in China. And um, some scientists are curious, could there be other sequences that were deleted from the public facing database um, that could help fill out the phylogenetic tree as to you know, how this virus evolved um, and from where it evolved and whether it's natural or not. Um, and we know that there are a lot of Republicans in Congress who are interested in digging into this and who are following our investigation really closely and are going to see, you know, hey, these six pages of notes from this teleconference or summary of these teleconferences um, could be important. Let's subpoena those um, and find out what was going on. Um, so if we see either the House or the Senate um, flip to Republican control, um, that could be another um, another investigation that um, could shed more light on this. And well, Emily, real, let me do a let, Robert, let me do a real quick go ahead. for anybody who yep. any for anybody who's kind of new to this and and skeptical of it. Allow me, this would be a good one for you. About <laughs> a month ago, I did a podcast episode on my my Intercept podcast called Deconstructed. It's about an hour long with some three of the journalists who've been doing great. Emily is, uh, has done terrific work on this. Um, I had a couple of Intercept journalists and, and another uh, author on there uh, who talk about how this unfolded from start to finish and in, in a way that I think is pretty digestible uh, for people. So that's, you could just find it in the feed from about, about a month ago. Beautiful. I'm going to check that out. I'm going to check that out, Ryan, and I encourage everybody else to check it out, too. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you, Emily, for your, your work on this is just so critical. We just want to know the truth. Shouldn't be so hard. Uh, thank you both. Thank you. And stay with us because we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, the Bilderberg meetings held this past weekend at the Mandarin Oriental in Washington, D.C., convened again for the first time after a two-year pandemic hiatus. About 120 of the West's most powerful people, including heads of NATO, CIA and NSA, prime ministers of nations, big tech executives and vaccine makers, gathered together to discuss the world's problems, mostly focusing on war and foreign policy. You've probably never heard of these meetings. Most people haven't, and that's no surprise. The meetings are conducted in secret without any press. In fact, the organizers are proud of the secrecy. On their website, they state, the meetings are held under the Chatham House rule, which states that participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speakers nor of any other participant may be revealed. Thanks to the private nature of the meeting, the participants take part as individuals rather than in any official capacity and hence are not bound by the conventions of their office or by pre-agreed positions. Oh, sure. So democratically elected policymakers and other government chiefs who work on the taxpayer's dime go and sip cocktails behind closed doors in a luxurious hotel discussing important matters such as war, global alliances, pandemic responses and disinformation with the corporate billionaire class all weekend in secret without the press. But don't worry. They're doing it as private citizens. So it's OK, because what they discuss probably won't affect us. Right. They actually completely blocked off the Mandarin Oriental for these meetings. Here's independent journalist Josh Friedman reporting from the location. 
Now, the Bilderberg meetings actually have their own website where they do give us some insight into what it is they talk about and who attends. This year's meeting covered 14 topics, geopolitical realignments, NATO challenges, China, Indo-Pacific realignment, Shino-U.S. tech competition, Russia, continuity of government and the economy, disruption of the global financial system, disinformation, energy security and sustainability, post-pandemic health, fragmentation of democratic societies, trade and deglobalization, and finally, Ukraine. In fact, The Guardian reported that Zelensky himself was rumored to be making an appearance, appearance via Skype. Curious if he was also attending as a private citizen. People on the published list of participants, including wealthy investors and bankers like Peter Thiel from Thiel Capital and executives from Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs. The CEO of Pfizer was there, presumably to talk about post-pandemic health. The list includes many from the artificial intelligence space, such as executives from Facebook and DeepMind, as well as the former head of Google, oil and gas executives from Shell and Naftogaz, Ukraine's largest oil and gas company. Many experts on Russia and Ukraine were in attendance, as well as politicians, policymakers and global leaders, such as Senator Kirsten Sinema, NSA Director Jake Sullivan, CIA Director William Burns, the King of the Netherlands, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, Finland's Prime Minister Santa Marin, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Root, the head of French intelligence, and even Henry Kissinger. This year's meeting was led by the Secretary General of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg. But again, they insist there is nothing of public importance going on at this meeting. It's just private citizens getting together in a blockaded hotel, chit-chatting about global matters like war and pandemics. Nothing of consequence that we should be concerned about. So there's no need for any reporting or transcripts. The few reporters who attempted to gain access, reporters such as Max Blumenthal, Josh Friedman, Frank Analysis, Luke Radowski, were denied, and actually the location of the meetings themselves were never announced and remained secret. It was reporter Josh Friedman who was able to figure out where the meetings were even happening. As much as the organizers want to claim all of these powerful people who have the ability to march us into wars, shut down entire nations during a pandemic, and spend endless amount of taxpayer money on things like weapons of mass destruction, are just operating as private citizens, we all know better. These people are not getting together to mingle. Even though nothing official comes from these meetings, no votes, no resolutions or policy statements, there absolutely are ideas being exchanged and decisions being made. The question is, aren't we the people entitled to a reading of the minutes? So what do you think, Olimi and Robbie? Do you think we should be knowing what is going on behind these closed doors, who's in attendance, what they talk about. Shouldn't there be transcripts, reporters in these meetings with these very powerful people? Or is it fine that they're just private citizens getting together, chit-chatting about war? No, it's not fine at all. I think we absolutely are entitled like that many, that many politicians, different countries. There's no way. It's not it's not chit chat. It can't be something. Listen, I don't believe in secrecy anywhere, but attorney client privilege when it comes to our lawmakers and the people who are responsible for us and make these decisions over our lives, especially at a time like this. We should know everything they're discussing, who they're discussing it with and why. Right. How about more privacy for genuine private citizens. We need privacy from these people. These are the spy ministers. These are the people watching us at all times. Um, you know, how many, right, we're talking about NATO people, we're talking about uh, former CIA, FBI, law enforcement type people. You know, it's not just those aren't private citizens anyway, or maybe they are now. They, right. they, they, they weren't before. They have very public facing roles and they are coming up with policies. 
that they want everyone to be forced to adopt. So it's not, you know, it's not, it's not going to be, they don't want it to be voluntary. They don't, I'm I'm sure a lot of these people wanted vaccine mandates. They want, you know, funding of, uh, they want weapons sent various places. They want interventions. They want all kinds of things. So, well, fine, but let's discuss it. Let's know what's being, what's being proposed. Let's not have it behind closed doors if that is the case, which I, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this, this meeting has been going on since I, I think 1957 was the first meeting and it's annual. It just skipped a couple of years because of the pandemic. Maybe they still met via Zoom or something, but, you know, they've been doing this for the longest time. And the fact that it isn't being reported on because reporters can't get to it and the fact that that's not even being reported reported on by the mainstream media. I mean, you have prime ministers showing up to this thing. And like you mentioned, spy masters, you have the head of the CIA, the head of French intelligence, which is their which is their uh, their CIA or their MI6. So that it's crazy that all of these people are getting together. Then you have not only just policymakers, but they're mixed in with the billionaire corporate class. So you have the heads of corporations that are absolutely no doubt there trying to encourage these world leaders into policies that are going to line their pocketbooks, of course. So you've got the CEO of Pfizer there saying, hey, uh, we need to buy more. You, need, you guys need to buy more vaccines. You know, it's for it's an it's a national security. You, of course, have uh, guys from the spy. There's a lot of artificial intelligence. This should be very kind of frightening for people. A lot of artificial intelligence people there that were that are looking for ways to spy on us to prevent disinformation. Right. And you've got others. So all of these industries, weapons, people, artificial intelligence, uh, vaccine, all of these different groups there. What are those CEOs there for? What are those board members or chairman of the boards? What are they there for? They're there to get money. That's what they're there for, to influence policy. So we've been putting up with this for a really long time. There's not a light, a lot of light shed on this. Anybody who then talks about it is called a conspiracy theorist. (laughs) But it's like, look, these guys are not helping with the they they say, oh, it's just a conspiracy theory. But if you're going to hold a meeting behind closed doors, you're going to blockade it off. You're not going to let anybody report on it. What else? What what do you think that is? I mean, that sounds the way (laughs) the way I see it is in our current world, like nothing is secret, right? There is no privacy. You know what's happening almost everywhere. So the ability for this many important people to be in a place and we not hear about it because I didn't know about it. I this sounds like an episode of billions and that in and of itself tells me it's untoward. So the fact that we (laughs) the fact that they are even able to successfully go to whatever lengths and, you know, there must be links to keep this completely private from us. There's a a reason. There's definitely things being discussed you don't want us to know about, hear about, or even get an indication that there might be happening. So that tells me everything I need to know that we should be privy to it. Because at the end of the day, we elect elect government officials. We have these people in power because they're supposed to serve us, right? We put them in the place. We want to know what they're doing. We want to have approval in it. We want to have a say in it. So instead of giving us access to it, we have no knowledge of it. Reporters can't go there. But you have billionaires there. And the billionaires are getting to discuss what you're going to do and what you might do. That is definitely a problem. Well, and then the, this whole notion that they could separate and suddenly be private citizens, and you've got all these, you know, okay, that's one thing if it's like a birthday party that they're going to for their niece or nephew, but it's right. another thing if it's a bunch of powerful people in these positions of decision making, and then they're just saying, oh, but well, don't worry about it. They're in operating right meeting. now. Yeah, is, this is just a private, these are just <laughs> private people. They're right. nobody, you know, <laughs> insane, totally yeah. insane. But, uh, you know, I wish I could tell you more about what happened at these meetings. I don't know. You watch billions. We don't know. I'm sure we'll know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little less privacy for the people trying to intricately control and plan our lives, and a little more privacy for everybody else. Yes. How's that sound? Thank you, Kim. We'll have more rising right after this. 
Chris Licht, the new CNN chairman, is encouraging a more nuanced approach to the network's coverage. Imagine that. According to the New York Times, CNN's breaking news banner is gone. Snarky captions like this gem on the screen that read, Angry Trump turns briefing into propaganda session. It's just just the news, folks. Uh, Those are being discouraged, and political (laughs) shows will be working to book more conservative voices. And by that, it will be interesting if they mean, you know, their typical never-Trump former CIA person turned, you know, further critic of... Uh, all Republicans, or they mean an actual conservative. That would mean that would mean what a conservative is today, which is a which is a again a foreign policy non-interventionist person, someone who leans heavy into the culture wars, someone who you know is. I'm not saying I agree with these things, but that's what that's what a conservative right. actually is. The people who watch CNN would have no idea because they never have anyone ever ever anyone who who fits that mold. Yeah, they're definitely, I mean, look, he's going in there and obviously change has to be made. It's a failing network at this point. So they can't hold on to this ideology and continue on as an activist news organization. They have to actually become a news organization again and be more fair and balanced and, you know, not to use Fox News as slogan, but that is what they have to do. So he has to go in there and say, no more of this stuff. We're not going to be activist news. We're not going to be, you know, just sticking with one ideology because it's clearly not working. Something has to give. That network is dying. CNN Plus died in a matter of 10 days. And the network itself cannot even hold on to the audience that they're targeting. They've got more Democrats watching Tucker Carlson than CNN. That says something. So they clearly are are missing the mark. They're not reading the room. They don't understand the mentality of where the people are at with things. And they need to get on board really quick. I just don't know if this guy's going to be able to do it. A lot of people, they kind of understand something's not quite right. They understand. They look at the numbers. It's clear. It's obvious. But they don't really fully understand, I think, the anti-establishment mentality that has been growing heavily amongst independents in this country. And more Mm -hmm. and more people are claiming to be independent than on the right or the left. On the right and left right now, I think it's like like a quarter of the people say, yeah, I'm a Republican. Yeah, I'm a Democrat. And then the rest are like, I'm an independent like myself. I'm an independent. I just cannot with either of these groups. Not going to do that vote blue no matter who. Not going to always vote red. You know, otherwise. Uh, But so they've just got to get on board with that. But I don't know if they know. I don't know if they understand. You can't put a CEO in there who's been rich for years and mingling in those circles and suddenly he's going to get it. I doubt he's going to get it. But we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, It's but they have so many good report. They do have good reporters at CNN. I, I, I think if they feel more empowered or more supported to be less maybe narrative driven or, you know, just kind of in that mold or the, 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 the way they're guided by some of the more opinion oriented hosts. I, I think they could succeed, but to win back an audience and then, you know, just to contend with the problem that their target audience, you know, young, they, they want a younger audience. Obviously, they have a more liberal audience. These are just these are not people who watch the TV all day. I think I'm finally ready. I think I'm finally ready to cancel my uh, my my cable my my TV subscription. I think I don't. You still cable. haven't done that yet. Oh I do have God. one. I have it to you put on. Have cable? Uh, Robbie stream. <laughs> Robbie stream. Well, I stream as well. But I, I thought <laughs> I, I always thought I needed it because I wanted I wanted to see what they were talking about on Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. But I never like not once in the last three months have I turned on the TV for anything other than to quickly flip over to HBO or Disney plus. So, (laughs) well, I think CNN needs to actually fire everybody in clear house. I'm just going to say they, they're going to have to everybody. Uh, well, clear and sale. Everything must go. 
I, yeah, they're, I think they're going to have to, at least definitely the, the evening shows that are more opinion-based. I think they're going to have to clear house. And even a lot of their daytime shows that are more opinion-based, maybe they could get away with keeping Jake Tapper. I don't know, because sometimes he seems to at least be the only one that's willing to kind of question any sort of any Democrat once they come on a show. But otherwise, I think they're going to have to clear house. I don't think they can keep those names on with the brands that those people have built and go back to being where they need to be in order to in order to capture an audience. I think they're going to have to clear house. Maybe the daytime report, the actual reporters who go on the road, you know, they could keep those people because people don't know who they are. But everybody else, the names, I think they got to get rid of them. What do you think, Ole? Do you watch? Uh, do you watch much CNN these days? Listen, not not these days, but my household is an avid CNN watcher. Home in the Bahamas, my parents have the TV on CNN at every second of every day, so I am familiar. I can't say I know the specific answers to what they need to do to revitalize the network. I can't say that I agree with you all that hiring, you know, a conservative or at least that's their own approach, the CEO to want to do that is going to do it. I think if they want to get these these younger audience, this leftist base or whatever it is, they need to actually go and, you know, like I said, interact with them, figure out who they want to hear from, what different narratives they want to hear. I do think they are detached from what um, people are actually looking from. But I don't know if it means, you know, they should they should wade into these waters and maybe get a conservative or anything. I do think that they probably need to revamp, but I think it's just so it's an actual leftist perspective. Very often these like yeah. liberal or democratic, you know, networks are perceived as being, you know, left and all this different stuff by the right, but they're not actually to the left and people who yeah. want to hear from that. So I think they need to do that. They need to get on the ground, figure out who the real leftist voices are, what people want to hear from and do it that way as opposed to just like... You're establishing Dems and liberals right. that they're calling left. Yeah. But, then, but if they're even trying to do that, they're competing with so many on streaming, on YouTube, <laughs> platforms that are talking to a leftist audience already very successfully to the audience not being represented but by the media. But, get those people. The yeah. reason why you see so many like leftist people go and make their own YouTube shows and go do these different things is because they're not being offered an avenue in mainstream media. They're just not. Right. So they need to do that instead of allowing these people to carve out their own hole and then people just right. leave you alone. They leave CNN alone because why? Why do I need to go there when I have Twitter? I could follow. I could hone you know, my own leftist uh, timeline and go on these YouTube shows. So I think they need to do that. They need to get on the ground and really reevaluate evaluate what it actually means to be left and realize it's probably not the centrist they keep putting yeah. on. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely, Olami. Mean, I don't think that the, the path is, oh, we need conservatives to come on here and do yeah. what? That's right. not the issue. They're totally missing it. If exactly. they think that that's going to build back their audience, they're wrong. It's They've got to go actually find people who are leftists. Yes. But the problem, and this is why I think they, going back to why they have to fire everybody, those people that they've been having on their network this whole time have been calling everybody that's on the left, uh, you know, it, cr cr yep. Kremlin, you know, yep. pro-Kremlin if they're anti-war or they're conspiracy theorists, if they're, mm -hmm. you know, all they just name call. They disrespect the left, their own base, and then people leave them alone. That's what happens. I, I, I completely agree, Kim. We're right here. <laughs> That's what they got to do. Yeah, we should go run the network. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody give me a job. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that might make much better TV. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Robbie. No disagreement there. Oh, here. And that's yeah. why we're doing this. I'm here. <laughs> we have better ratings and better, bigger views than CNN gets. That's There's a reason. probably true. It's and they, need, they, need to go, they need to go They need to go. back to the drawing board. <laughs> All right. Tomorrow on Rising, well, we'll keep you updated on any gun reform happening or not happening on Capitol Hill. And as we mentioned before, Brianna Joy Gray will be back in the chair with you all. It's been really fun today. Well, we so enjoyed having yeah, you. You've been great. Thank been you, great. All right, guys. Thanks. Uh, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And, of course, if you want to listen to us on the go, you can. Listen to our podcast. There we are. Be sure to check that out. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. tomorrow.